Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 158. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fuleman? None too shabby. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing well. It's been an enjoyable weekend for me. Yeah. Um, and I guess also making it an enjoyable weekend is the fact that the Leafs have gone uh, two for two uh, this weekend on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, uh, the Leafs have won eight of their last nine games, I believe mm-hmm. it is, which is kind of remarkable after a pretty brutal early skid. Yeah, and, and a pretty brutal early skid where they had some genuinely rather concerning results, the, the games against Pittsburgh and Carolina in particular. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying that every single one in this win streak-ish or this clump of wins has been a Rembrandt. You know, some of them have been a bit ugly, but the fact well, is they've won a lot of them and some of them have been good. Yeah, well, certainly the one, the one yesterday against the Sabres, <laughs> definitely on the ugly side of things. It was um, a gong show. That It was just... Honestly, really, really ugly game. Not a good advertisement for, for NHL hockey in, well, any, you know, in any way. I'll say this. It was kind of fun. It was a total mess, but I sort of enjoyed it. It was not the beautiful game by any no. means. It was not, you know, Canada v. Russia at their best. Yeah, it was, it was, it was chaotic, right? <laughs> the Leafs didn't play particularly well. Um, the second night of a back-to-back, although the Sabres were as well. Uh, I mean... It, We'll just quickly talk about it. Maybe Nylander and Matthews, I think, had two of their two of the worst games I've seen them have in quite a while. Um, yeah, and to and, the point where Nylander got benched as the, go- yeah. the game went on, and I, you know there was some frustration about it because Nylander has been probably the best forward on the team this year, um, heretofore. Uh, but you know he was playing badly, and to some extent, I view that as within the coach's purview. Like there was a lot of talk about like, oh, he'd never bench Marner because you know people view Marner in kind of a punitive way still, and I don't know. Like, I, I trust that he will play Nylander more going forward because he's been generally been doing that this year after we were yeah. concerned that he might not, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not concerned about it unless we get to, you know, consistent issues where Nylander is, is underplayed, mm-hmm. right? So, and that doesn't appear to really be an issue yet, although, I mean, saying that, it's worth noting a li- that, his time on ice, you know, first three or four games, people were saying, oh, you know, William Nylander is getting a lot more time on ice. He's getting the time on ice he deserves. It has dropped off. Now, part of that is probably just Matthews has come back, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I think also Nylander's PK time has dropped off. I think Kasha has kind of taken last forward on the PK spots uh, from, from Nylander. But Nylander is playing as much as, as Tavares. I, I'm, I'm okay with that, generally yeah. speaking. That sounds about right. So I'll consider it, you know, some people kind of ragged on us for being a little bit negative. Imagine that, the two of us being pessimistic uh, mm. during the last podcast. And, you know, I think, look, on balance, the last two weeks have been pretty good. They haven't been perfect, but they've been encouraging, let's say. So, like, you know, we're going into this feeling good. Um, and I don't want to totally lose sight of that uh, before mm-hmm. we turn to some... More specific analysis, because we wanted to talk about shooting. Yes. So, uh, as you know, you probably know, if you're a Leafs fan, we ha- the Leafs have drastically undershot their expected goals this year. Um, this has been discussed, you know, in, on Twitter and in the kind of, you know, the fancy stat adjacent segment of, of hockey Twitter and Leafs Twitter. Uh, but I think this has also been dis- discussed really in, in mainstream analysis as well, um, that the Leafs have had have gotten, quote-unquote, goalied a lot. And there, there's multiple ways to view this. You can view this as, um, you know, there's there's some bad luck involved and there are some, some variants where you, you don't expect the Leafs to, to generate the chances they've generated and score this few goals for, for very long. Um, and the other way to view it is, well, maybe there's something systemic that they're doing that is um, not allowing them to finish to this degree. But before we really dive into that more, let's just kind of set the terms of what we mean here. So per hockey viz... Um, in all situations, the Leafs have recorded 42 expected goals, and they've scored 27 actual goals. So that's um, quite an underperformance, right? Their their actual goals are 65% of their expected goals. Um, now, that's a degree of finishing underperformance that I don't believe essentially any team persists year to year. Like that That's, that's the f- level of finishing talent you would get if you ported an AHL team over into the NHL. Yeah. So just to say that in maybe more conventional hockey terms, just bringing it back to old coach speak, 
sometimes you just say, well, we were getting the chances and sooner or later they're going to go in. This is kind of what that looks like. Is the Leafs are evidently getting chances and they're going in way less than we have any right to expect. And then the question is, okay, how often should we count on them to score? If it's just, look, they're getting unlucky, they're running into goalies having the nights of their life, but in the long run, this is going to balance out, then that's more encouraging. And we would expect going forward, the Leafs are going to look a lot more like that XG number than they do like that actual number, which is way lower. Um, but if they're doing something that expected goals isn't capturing, that means the chances they're getting actually are worse. That means they're making the opposing goalie look better than they really are. That's more of a concern, and that might not be something that corrects over time. Now, to be clear, you're not guaranteed any kind of correction in any specific time frame. It's just like more likely than not, you're going to end up pretty close to your XG in the long run. Unless right. we have some reason to think you're way worse or way better. Yes. So, in that, and I think when the Leafs were really struggling in the early going, people were saying, in general, the Leafs are getting good chances and they'll, they'll eventually score more of these chances than they than they were to start which was undeniably true and also does not completely address all the concerns people had about the Leafs in the in the early going right as we've said ad nauseum the, the question wasn't about whether the Leafs are a good team it's whether they can be a contending team um, and when you're a contending team in a lot of senses reverting to average might not be enough mm-hmm right? The Leafs are, in some sense, built on the idea of, not in some sense, I mean, primarily, they're built on the idea of elite offense through their four forwards, through their best defensemen, or their most highly paid defensemen, at least, um, Morgan Riley being an offensive dynamo. That really has to be where, where the Leafs excel. And we have a tendency to think of the Leafs as this very strong offensive team, um, justifiably so they're they, they've always been a strong offensive team in the Matthews era that's been true essentially at every point except in the first like 20 games of the season that Mike Babcock got fired in mm-hmm. and the way the Leafs have done that is generally by taking a lot of shots taking a lot of good shots and then outperforming the expected goals on those shots in generally speaking right so Fulman you have some you have some numbers here that it might be worth bringing up just to kind of make it clear what we're talking about. Right. So we looked at natural stature, one pure full stat site. Love it. Very easy to navigate and use. And we just compared how many goals were they expected to score, 5v5, and how many did they actually put in the net? So a positive number there means they're scoring more than the chances they're getting would lead us to expect that they will. Negative number means they're undershooting. Um, so this year, they're already at minus 8, 5v5. In terms and this of, is what, like 13 games in, right? Yeah, so so, like, so keep, keep, keep that scale in mind. Yeah, so already there are eight games under what we'd expect. That's pretty nuts. Like, that's a lot of underperformance in a tiny sample. And it's probably not going to continue. Last year, they were plus 19. Year before that, they were plus 16. Year before that, they were minus four. And the year before that, they were plus 20. And that's as far back as I thought it was worthwhile to go. But it's worth noting, the Leafs have generally outshot their chances. So they finished better than XG would make us think that they would. They've done a good job of putting the puck in the net. So if you want to believe, okay, is that minus eight number going to get better in a hurry? The most encouraging thing you can look at is say, okay, well, the last couple of years, this has been a good finishing team. This has been a team that cashes in more often than not. And this little slump where they are not doing that is more likely to be a little bit of a fluke than something systemic. Right. The the degree to which they are underperforming was very obviously going to rebound to some extent because, as I said off the top, no team underperforms this badly throughout an entire season. It's very rare. At five, at five on five, the Leafs are, are getting, like, over the course of this past, its first, like, 13, 14 games, whatever it is, uh, 75% of their uh, expected goals have been turned into actual goals. So, like, that 25% underperformance is very, very large. A quick spot check of teams like Carolina, historically, who, who, who have struggled to, to convert. They're, even they're in, like, the low 80s, right? Yeah. So, so like, they, they were, they're finishing not just, like, a bad finishing team, like a team that just isn't an NHL team yeah. in terms of finishing. And so that's not going to keep going. Yes, very much so. Um, but then the question becomes, okay, what are they going to revert to? 
And I think I was, I think maybe I, I got a little in eye testy on this where I, I, you know, started to wonder, we chatted about this in our PPP Slack and, and things like that. Like, can we still expect the Leafs to, to con- convert like an above average team? And this is before we had looked up the numbers for, for how they'd done previously. Because we've had this reputation of a strong offensive team that can outshoot its, its um, expected goals for a while. But when you look at it, that's really concentrated in a very small amount of players. And actually, very con- concentrated in Austin Matthews in particular. Um, yeah, words can't we, express. Like, he's insane. In yes. terms of how like how good a shooter is, and anyone with eyes can tell you that because they've been like, oh yeah, I saw him do that to people, but yeah, it, it's kind of remarkable, um, just how much of the Leafs shooting talent is just they employ Austin Matthews as their one C. Yes, because when you get past Austin Matthews, it actually there is not there aren't really any other super plus shooters. I think the obvious answer is to say, oh, John Tavares, but. Um, John Tavares has actually not been an amazing shooter the last couple years. His elite offensive production tends to be, you know, the very kind of boring on-brand John Tavares way. He just gets into good positions and converts on them reasonably well. And some years he converts on them very well, and some years he converts on them less well. Yeah, that's maybe some point to distinguish there. Because we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, so John Tavares isn't actually finishing better than you'd expect on the really good chances he gets. And you say, who cares? He's getting really good chances and he's putting the puck in the net generally. And he's a really good player. That's good. We're just trying to figure out, okay, when we look at the Leafs as a pretty good XG team, which they are, they're fifth in the NHL at the moment, how much do we expect them to beat that or to underperform that? How much does that really reflect who they are? And in the back of our heads is the last two playoff series against Montreal and then the qualifying round against Columbus the Leafs shooting went to hell at an extremely unfortunate time. And it was, I would say, in both cases, the number one cause of death for that team. And so we're wondering, is there something about the Leafs that makes them undershoot? Or especially against good defenses? Are they not that great at shooting? Or is it just kind of fluky? And that's harder to determine. But that's partly what we're trying to look into here is is this team actually a good shooting team? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's definitely... The, based on the, the history of this team, I think you can say that, yeah, we expect them to have something at least slightly above league average, but that's assuming a few things. That's, that's like an expectation, right? Mm-hmm. That's assuming good health. And this is the most key one. It, and it's good health, not generally, but good health to one person in particular, Austin Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, we are an Austin Matthews injury away or an Austin Matthews risk flare, a wrist flare up away from, okay, yeah, we're, we can no longer expect to be an average shooting team. Mm-hmm. So that, that is worth keeping in mind. That's not to be a downer about it. You, and it's, it's obvious to some extent. Every, every team is reliant on their star players. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but when it comes to shooting specifically and saying, okay, you know, the Leafs have had uh, poor shooting performances here, but it's going to regress. That depends on more more than anything Austin Matthews. So it, it's it's just worth keeping in mind that that is that is quite precarious. Yeah, I, I think I like that we we are taking a look at this just because the Leafs statistically looked quite good last year, and in a lot of the models for this year, they were viewed favorably. Um, Hockey Viz actually projected them to win the President's Trophy which was kind of remarkable. And a lot of Leaf fans looked at that and said, what the fuck? And I think it's worth trying to think, okay, what are the numbers saying? And then where could the numbers maybe be leading us astray? And I think also the popular narrative around the Leafs has sometimes been slow to update to what the team actually is now. Like you'll still get people who are saying that the Leafs are this fast, young defensively erratic team and the truth is they're not that young anymore mm-hmm. they're not that fast anymore especially with the last the loss of Kapanen and Janssen over the past few years Zach Hyman is another good skater out the door in fact the guy I would say confidently is a really above average north-south skater on the Leafs right now is Nylander and then gets a little dicey yeah then you get guys like Pierre Engvall and Ilya Mikheyev who are good north south skaters but like they're not contributing to your positive shooting that's for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, you know what? At the start of this year, Pierre Engvall was listed as like a plus 0.2% shooter on Hockey Viz. And I'm like, mm. that, that feels like it can't continue. But uh, yeah. So, so, and then the, the, the defensive reputation. This year, the Leafs defense has been a bit shaky at times with Muzzin and Hall having some early season struggles. But the truth is the last couple of years, defensively, they were kind of fine. They certainly weren't as abject as they used to be. And I think it can be worth kind of updating these beliefs that we just all have about who Toronto actually is uh, to try and figure out where they're going. So that said, you know, I, I think we're looking at a team that's very strong in a possession sense now to my eye that seems to control the zone, that seems to get the better of the chances. And that can be counted on to finish at an above average rate, but it's not quite as... Let's say I don't want to get overconfident on it, because as you say, Austin Matthews' risk going bum at the wrong time is going to be bad. <laughs> right, so like, just to put uh, a... To make this more concrete, um, I'm using evolving hockey numbers now just because that happens to be working nicer for me as we are recording. Last year, um, at, this is all 5v5 numbers, last year um, the Leafs scored 10 goals above expected according to evolving hockey at 5-on-5. Five five. Last year... Austin Matthews had 30 goals at 5-on-5 five five on 18 individual expected goals, plus 12. That outperformance is Austin Matthews. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then some, yeah. Yeah. The year before, so now we're talking 2019-2020, um, Evolving Hockey says the Leafs scored uh, 7 goals more than expected at 5-on-5. Five five. That year, Austin Matthews had... Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, that year was the year Matthews had... Uh, a plus 12 individual expected goals last year he was a lowly plus 11 <laughs> how does he sleep yes it, so you know and these numbers di differ somewhat from site to site it's worth noting yeah. they calculate expected goals differently but they all suggest the same sort of thing which is that our Matthews our, our margin as yeah our, our margin as a good shooting team is austin matthews mm -hmm. right so that is that is very much worth keeping in mind right. and that that was especially the case um you know in the first few games when matthews was hurt right mm -hmm. um like you know if we talk about that particular set leafs x matthews is not a team that you can expect to convert at an above average rate side mm -hmm. note this is also why so i think the money puck deserved to win meter is a very very excellent piece of visualization generally and a very nice useful heuristic um one thing i think it has resulted in is a lot of tweets of the genre of shrug emoji and then a screenshot of that in a game where the Leafs have like a 65% chance of winning based on the deserve to win o meter, mm -hmm. um, and and that they end up losing. So just to be clear, this deserve to win o meter is essentially just calculating the probabilities of um, it's it's simulating the game based on the expected goals of the chances that arise, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it assumes average finishing, which is a fair thing to assume because. Um, you know, if, as a heuristic, you're just trying to see, okay, which team is generating the better chances. But in an individual game-to-game -game sense, what can often be the problem is you're not getting guys like Austin Matthews in those positions in every single game. That's why it's so important that he be... Uh, we're harping on this a lot, but it's so important that, that Austin Matthews be the one who takes a lot of our shots mm -hmm. in particular. Because every shot from him has a good chance of going in. Um, there are games where we have, I don't know, 2.5 XG but it's mostly Pierre Engvall, right? And it's like, okay, good for Pierre Engvall, but that's not how this team needs, that's not how this team is going to win, mm -hmm. right? So that, that's, it's just worth keeping that in mind, um, that we, we really are super, super, super dependent on Matthews in particular, and that's not a bad thing in the sense that Matthews is as bankable a superstar that exists this side of like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl mm -hmm. when it comes to putting up points, when it comes to putting up goals. Right, um, we can we can rely on Matthews, you know, barring injury, he's going to get shots, he's going to get chances, he's going to put him in the net. Um, but that's it. It means that w when you're analyzing this team, it's incomplete to just look at the total expected goals and say, okay, yeah, this team is going to revert, without considering where those expected goals are coming from and the possibilities, and the 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 ways that. You know, the, the challenges that arise when you are so dependent on that one person in an individual or to, to you know, carry so much of the offense in terms of your ability to actually convert. 
Yeah. Right? That's not to say the rest of the Leafs besides Matthews are, like, you know, playing with ringette sticks. <laughs> uh, but it's just, without Matthews, we're a league average team shooting. So you still shouldn't expect the same poor level shooting that we've seen so far this year. But there's less margin for error, right? And this, we're always talking about margin for error on this podcast because hockey does have so much variance. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthews is such a great player because he gives you a margin for error. You could have games where you don't actually play that well and you still win because Matthews will put one in uh, with a really low probability chance. But uh, this team, you know, as in terms of how it's shooting, is, is just very dependent on him. Yeah. He's our light. He's our star. We need him. Very obvious. But I think... You know, people have, I think, got a bit of a handle on the concept of regression to the mean now. Or at least, you know, like, they understand the basic concept, right? I do, and I'm not, like, at all a math person. (laughs) But, you know, it's not this automatic thing, like, where you just find your way back to the mean by magnetism. It's not not a law of nature. It's not like gravity. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you have a certain number of good players who shoot well. And given enough opportunities, they'll shoot at a certain rate. So, yeah, I mean, the Leafs are going to regress in a positive direction from this minus eight that they're currently on. And, and they already did to some extent. I mean, yeah. against Buffalo, they did not really generate much offense, frankly. Um, but they, I mean, Aaron Dell had a really awful night. And they, <laughs> if you the want Leafs, to regress to the mean, just shoot on Aaron Dell. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, get noted sniper David Kampf to, to pot one in. That was the funniest goal. Like, it happened in slow motion. Yeah, it was it was just <laughs> the the it would have been it's like I feel this that's the saddest way to concede a goal. Like if I concede a goal like that, if the Leafs concede a goal like that, and I'm we have I'm sure. Oh yeah. Many times, right? But you know you're you're just like annoyed when when McDavid like walked Riley for example and and just scored this brilliant goal against us last year. It's like okay, yeah, I'm not mad at that. Like that that was awesome. Mm-hmm. McDavid just does that. Right, you—it's impossible to be really frustrated with it when David Comp fans on a shot and hits it off his own skate and someone else's skate, and it trickles in at, you know, Jason Allison's speed skating. <laughs> you know, five hole through a, a unsighted Aaron Dow like that—that that I just would get frustrated at to no end if that happened against us. Yeah, it, like it wasn't your conventional goal mouth scramble goal because normally those end. Because it's a total mess, and then someone sees it and swings at it at the right moment and bashes it in the net. You know, Zach Hyman made his living doing that. Uh, Michael Bunting, his goal was, you know, a version of that. Yeah. Uh, This was just, like, it just was so slow. It was like, I don't know if anyone remembers, there's a How I Met Your Mother bit where Barney is learning to drive, and he just panics, and he doesn't put his foot on the gas, he just leaves it in drive so it crawls forward. And Ted's like, yeah, you're going to want to hit the brakes sometime in the next 20 minutes. That's what I felt like that goal was, except nobody hit the brakes and it went in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun. Uh, anyway, so I think we've covered the shooting percentage thing. Yeah. Uh, we're ready to talk about some delightful young defensemen. Yes, Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Lilligren, our, our lovely young Swedish boys. <laughs> yes, so as a pairing, speaking of delightful fancy stats, theirs are really, really good. Uh, mm-hmm. Sandines are also actually quite good with Travis Dermott. It's worth noting. Yeah, I remember I saw this. Um, it may have been a tweet that Money Puck had, mm-hmm. where they they had the the best defense pairings by expected goals against, uh, and Sandine Dermott was like I don't know maybe eighth from the bottom, and Sandine Lilligren was like fourth from the bottom. And in that they both have done an amazing job of limiting chances against. Yeah, they've both looked really good, and it's gotten to the point. I have to give credit where it's due. I did the profile for Timothy Lilligren in this year's top 25 under 25. I did it because nobody else wanted to do it because people were tired of talking about Timothy Lilligren. And I said, I count six players on the defense who are clearly ahead of him. Riley, Brody, Muzzin, Hall, Sandine, Dermott. And I said, he's waiver exempt. He's probably going to end up in the AHL as a top pair defenseman once again. And that's a little disappointing because we want him to come in and take a job. Well, uh, Justin Hall has had kind of a brutal start, has as Jake Muzzin. And so the Hall thing opened up a path for Timothy Lilligren. And to his credit, he's held on to a job. He's taken it and he's made it hard to take him out of the lineup. And so the result is that he's hung around. 
As for Rasmus Andine, who did not play last night, which frankly is... <laughs> would you really want a part in that total debacle, aside from the fact that... That's a point win? in his favor. Yeah. Sand Sandine, Sandine's stock went up by... Uh... <laughs> by omission yeah. in that in that you know massive tire fire of a game yeah i know like it's crazy like it's a game that they eventually won but it's like it was like it was a total mess but yeah mm. so i think you know we've seen them both be a really good third pair and at the same time we all remember third pair defensemen who have put up good fancy stats for short periods connor carrick comes to mind for me um but who have struggled to sustain that at a higher level um, and sometimes struggle to sustain that even at a third pair level long term. But the question is, how good do we think that Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Lilligren actually are or will be? Right. I think there's actually, there's different answers for the two of them. Well, in the sense yeah. that with Sandin, I think we were relatively confident prior to this year that, okay, yeah, Sandin can be the third pairing, can be a solid third pairing guy. Mm -hmm. Right, we we, we he not, it's not that he had a very long NHL track record or anything like that, but just based on what we'd seen in his uh, and kind of brief playoff stint, uh, what we saw in his regular season minutes when he did have them, th there there was enough there. Louis Green, on the other hand, had a really tumultuous time in the NHL prior to the season. His NHL track record before this year was just he didn't look very good. It's not like he looked he wasn't you know didn't look like I would look if I was put on on NHL ice. Or anything, but he didn't do anything where you were like, okay, I, I for sure see a future there. It was he still has to prove that he can help a team in any role. So in that sense, what he's done this year so far has been very positive. He's proven that he can help a team in a role. It's not the most important role. It's it's a role that lots of people can do, but that's something. Mm -hmm. Um, and that may sound like damning with faint praise, but I I don't mean it as such. I mean that genuinely is okay. Cool. Though you're going to showing he can be a part. Part of a useful third pairing that is that is helping your team on the margins. Mm -hmm. For Sandine, the the question still is: Is he going to get off the aisle of sheltered third pairing guys? Right. I yeah, I am increasingly confident that Rasmus Sandine is going to be a real boy, mm -hmm. as in at least a second pair defenseman. It helps that he's younger than Lilligren for one thing, so he's got more runway ahead of him. Yes, but he's got. Very, very good vision. You know, he's a playmaker on the defense. And, mm -hmm. you know, everyone talks about a good first pass now from defensemen. Or, Sandin's case, he can make good second, third, and fourth passes. But I think he's established that he's a real plus contributor in terms of moving the puck. The knocks on Sandin have always been, okay, how good can you really be if you're not that big and you're not that superlative a skater? If you have a lot of other things going for you because I think he's a smart player. I think he's a gifted player with a good feel for the game, good vision, all of those other things that compensate for those two kind of prominent drawbacks. Yeah. Sandin's biggest issue in some sense is that he's essentially a league average or below NHL athlete. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so you wonder how much his head for the game, mm -hmm. you know, for a while, Kyle Dubas seemed to only draft players who had hockey IQ in the first line of their scouting reports, and I know some people hate that because it's a vague phrase. But in Sandine's case, I think if you're trying to sum up what his big asset is, that's what it is. It's hockey IQ. Yeah, he, He's just good at hockey. He clearly <laughs> processes the game very well, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yeah, so they've been playing a lot. That pairing has been playing a lot with the Jason Spezza-led fourth line, mm -hmm. uh, another line that's had, at least to my eye, and I haven't looked at the stats on this, but... I think they've, that line has been pretty good. Wayne Simmons looks like he has some real pep in his step this year, mm -hmm. which has been awesome to see. Um, and, and that line, as you would expect, goes up against other depth lines and has done a good job of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, w when he's played with that line, Sandine and, and Noyuren get more offensive usage, but of course their usage in general isn't particularly offensive when it comes to zone starts, right? Their, their usage is, is very kind of mid except for the competition they play against which is soft and i guess you know of course that's also compensated to the fact by the fact that they don't play that often with uh any of the top four forwards right i think certainly the first thing you always want to say is okay the usage is what it is but it's better to succeed in the role that you're in than not yes for all the absolutely. caveats we have to put in it you can only win or lose the minutes that the coach gives you to play to some extent and they are playing quite well on them. 
I do think with Liljegren, you know, he's a good example that we probably need to be more specific than good skater when describing players and prospects mm-hmm. because he's a good lateral skater. Like, he's very agile, and he kind of does these twisty little moves that are uh, Mitch Marner-esque is overstating it. But he's, like, very good at sort of operating in a small space unexpectedly. He had a great play against Philadelphia that didn't lead to a whole lot, but he was just carrying the puck across the top of the offensive zone, and he did this little stutter step, and Farabee was, like, so faked out by it that he fell over 10 feet away. It was very fun. But Liljegren is not a fast player, north-south. And to take another example, against Los Angeles, he got walked for a goal pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And so... You buy it by Trevor Moore. Yeah, and, you know, Moore... Moore is fast. He's fast, yeah. He's he's a good player. But I, I do think that every now and then that's going to happen to Liljegren. And you just have to say, okay, is the combination of other stuff that he brings enough to make up for it? And I don't know. It's It's already proven to be enough that he can probably be a third-pair guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm a little more doubtful that it's going to be more than that because I don't I don't think he's ever going to be a power play guy, whereas Sandine probably will. Mm-hmm. Um, and Liljegren is a little bit less. Uh, I'm going to fall into saying the word dynamic, but he's a little bit less dynamic than Sandine in terms of I don't think Liljegren has a huge capacity to make things happen in a mm-hmm. positive sense. He is capable of preventing things from happening. Yeah. So I, one thing I will say about Liljegren. And this has been this is not a new observation. This has been a strength of his for a long, long time. And you know anyone who's watched him on the Marlies, or I think even in his junior career in, in Sweden, would would attest to this. Um, he is a excellent, an excellent stretch passer. Mm. And the Leafs haven't had really, I think, a plus stretch passer since Jake Gardner. Right. Um, but Liljegren does actually provide that dimension. Now, as we said, the Leafs are no longer actually that fast. So in some sense, this is you know, we're not that well-suited a team for the stretch pass nowadays, but it is still useful to have. Yeah. I, every time we talk about a team being more cycle-based, more possession-based, more whatever, it's a matter of degree. All yes, teams do all things some of the time. Yeah, hockey's not controlled enough for a team to abstain entirely from a particular type of offense. Mm-hmm. Um, still, though, like, I, I think... On net, you're more encouraged about both of these players probably than you were when you started the season. Maybe Sandine, you kind of saw it coming, but... Yeah, well, Sandine, yeah. I'd say, you yeah. know, very, very slightly, but Liljegren more so. Um, because, yeah, like, there's good evidence that now... Not good, I mean, it's been still a very small amount of games. Um, yeah. But this is certainly more encouraging than the alternative would have been, right? It, I, I want to see Liljegren succeed in these minutes because, yeah, we. I mean... As, as we said when we talked about the Riley contract, the Leafs are committed to this core. There, there's, there's no big-ticket NHL players coming in who are going to drastically make this team better unless we're saying Dubas just wins a trade. And as we always say, that's not really an actual plan. Right. And, you know, who are they going to trade? Well, in this context, maybe Travis Dermott, I guess. But... I don't think Travis Dermott is returning you an impact NHL player. I hate exactly, to say. <laughs> and, and well, and, and just we don't even have the salary to absorb an impact NHL player unless they're making absolutely nothing. Yeah. Right. So if we're if we're getting a new fancy like actual established NHL player in, it's because we've traded effectively either William Nylander or Mitch Marner. Yes. <laughs> like that. That's that's what it boils down to. A hard and, trade to win. Yes. So, you know, we we need we need these guys on the margins to. Uh, to succeed and, and give us, as I keep saying, a margin for error, mm-hmm. right? If you can win those third pairing minutes, uh, those fourth line minutes, even just a little bit, it does help, right? Um, obviously, the Leafs kind of ride or die based on how their their top four is doing. But as we said yesterday, I, you know, or as we said regarding yesterday, Matthews and Nylander had one of their worst games of the year. The Leafs still won, mm-hmm. um, granted, and it was in part because of, you know, Jason Spezza created a goal. He didn't have a great game otherwise, but he did, you know, he had a great assist, I, th- I believe. And, you know, you got some contributions from elsewhere in the lineup. Now, again, this is against Buffalo. Is that going to happen if we face Boston? <laughs> I'm, I'm less confident. But that's the sort of thing you want to be able to see. Yeah. Uh, t- to be fair, they were also playing Joseph Wall. And, you know, he... Yeah. God bless him. But he didn't cover himself in glory, in my estimation. Mm. No, I, I think... 
I would say the people who we trust who follow the Marlies seem to think, you know, Wall's a good kid, probably doesn't have an incredible future as an NHL starter in front of him. But it's goalies, he can always prove us wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see. He just didn't prove us wrong at all last night. But no. um, uh, there was one other topic, and it's a player that we've discussed. It's Andre Kasha. Yes, speaking of death players who can co- help you contribute. Um, or who can help contribute to your team and, and help you, you know, win some minutes on the margins when the top guys aren't going. I guess he's another guy responsible for the win last night because he got a goal. Um, yeah, Ka- Kasha, we said this at the... St- this is, again, the most predictable thing in history, so we're not trying to take credit for this uh, in any, like, real sense. But we said if Kasha is healthy, he is a very, very good player. He will help the team, and he will be, like, <laughs> maybe our fifth best forward. And he's flirted with that. It's hard to distinguish who the fifth best forward really is at this point. There's a lot of contenders in that particular Turtle Derby, but I think Kasha has as good a claim to the title as anybody else. Yes. Um, and certainly he's got offensive skill, for lack of a better phrase. I said this about Josh Hosang in some of those preseason games where I was just sort of like, for all the flaws that his game does have, he was just obviously talented in a way that some of these players were not. Andre Kasha, similar thing at the NHL level where he sometimes just displays a capacity for offense that a lot of the other Leafs bottom sixers don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, now he's, he's spotted a few goals doing it, which is good. Um, the question is now, do we do something about it? Or are we content to put him with Engvall and David Kampf, as has mostly been the case? Wasn't last night, but in a, on a line there where the reality is he's with two really feeble offensive forwards. Great defensively, not good offensive players. And so he's going to make a lot of passes that aren't converted on. Um, it's a difficult decision to make, you know, because the line has worked for what it's supposed to do, just to slow the game down. And yet at the same time, you wonder, are you getting the best value out of Cash's abilities? Right. Right. So I guess maybe this will help illustrate the, the the general, I guess the the potential concern with with playing, um, with playing Kasha there. So Kasha now has, what is it four goals or something like that? Mm-hmm. He has one assist, I believe. Um, and when you see his line mates, that's not really a surprise. He's not going to really assist much playing with David Kampf and, and Pierre Engvall. Um, so Kasha's goal rate right now is, is very quite healthy at even strength. It's, it's you know, very, very good. He's actually uh, converting above expected after these last couple games because he's, he's been on a bit of a run. He scored in three straight games. I still haven't... The, the goal he scored against um, Calgary, which mm-hmm. was when the goal everyone thought Nylander scored. But apparently it went in off Kasha. I still haven't seen that it went in off Kasha. But whatever. Like, uh, <laughs> let, the, let the man have his goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but his, his goal rate is like 50th in the league right now. Which is, you know, obviously very, very good. His point rate is like 200th because he gets no assists. Because mm-hmm. there is no one else on his line who can score. So you have this guy who has scored at top six rates before. Comfortably at top six rates before. Who is demonstrating the ability to, to do so again. And for what it's worth, um, I mentioned he is shooting above his expected goals um, right now, but his expected goals are also very healthy. He's getting shots. And this is, I talk about this a lot. Um, I, I, I like looking at shot rate as an expected goal rate as a way to assess how really involved and how much someone is keeping up with the play because, you know, modulo some, some stylistic things. If someone is getting shots and getting chances, that's, it's almost always a good thing. It means that they are probably driving a lot of what is good um, for their team. He's scoring this. He has the same amount of expected goals, you know, per minute as guys like Timo Meyer, as guys like Jason Robertson, more than Austin Matthews. Right? He's generating tons of chances, and he he's not really getting the chance to to really drive offense in a more meaningful way because so many plays are just going to die on the stick of of Engvall and, and Comp. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, as you said, what do we do about this? You know, we have this guy who could score top six rates. We have this gaping hole in our top six where we have these two 
combinations, two great combinations of two very good players, with however you want to permute the core four, can we graft Kasha onto one of those? And Sheldon Keefe tried that last night, where Kasha played with Nylander and uh, Matthews. Now, the tricky thing, Kasha is a right winger. So, in terms of moving him up, really the only way to do this, not the only way, I suppose Kasha could move to left wing himself, but it hasn't really happened, and I don't see them trying to do it. The way it's most likely to happen is exactly the way we saw it last night. Nylander moves to left wing, and Kasha moves to the right wing on a line with, you know, Nylander and whoever the center he's playing with, currently Matthews. Mm-hmm. Now, this was, as we said a couple times, the worst game of Matthews and Nylander's season, arguably. Um, and I don't think all of that was the this new combination. It maybe contributed, especially with like unfamiliarity and things like that. But I also think Nylander is just better on the right wing than he is on the left wing. Yeah. His his most dangerous asset is his ability to carry the puck in, right? You neuter that by placing him on his left. I, I've harped on this before a, a bunch of times with um when Matthew or sorry with Nylander was playing with Tavares last year, and it's the same thing because the handedness is the same. If Nylander is on the right, it also makes it easier for him and Matthews to pass forehand to forehand, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so. And when we get into the offensive zone, obviously there's a lot of interchanging anyway. So this this really mostly matters for transition. But I, I just think Nylander plays better through the right. Mm-hmm. And at some point, like we have Kosh, we want to use him, but it does, does it make sense to possibly neuter arguably your best player this season to, to accommodate Kasha higher up in the lineup? Right. He's good, but he's not the kind of guy that you make movements around. He's the kind of guy that you move around the people who are more significant. There was something that I am surprised we haven't seen more of this year. And that is Kasha and Richie flanking center of your choice. Now, Nick Richie has not helped the team with his play for the most part this season. <laughs> but... Just a big... I, I felt like you were trying to find ways to like soften it, and then you just went for like the most plain way to say it, which ended up being the harshest way possible. <laughs> that came out worse than I, I meant. But the reality is, is that Richie has not played very well. Yeah. The one thing that Nick Richie can do is go to the slot and then bash pucks him when he gets there. I'm not saying he's extraordinary at it. This is not James Van Riemsdyk in disguise. But he can do that. And Kasha and Richie played together quite extensively in Anaheim. And it worked pretty well seemingly, for the two of them. Did they ever... Well, Kasha played so few games in Boston that I doubt they'd they have any meaningful time They did not very much in Boston, yeah. There was yeah. not a, much, a lot of crossover. But still, there might be at least some potential there compared to Pierre Engvall, who, again, past the blue line in the offensive zone, Pierre Engvall is borderline useless. We use him on the second power play unit for reasons not only the Sheldon Keith and God, but... Like, well, I mean, I mean <laughs> Engvall did have that power play goal... Uh, in the opening game, and he had one in preseason too, and everyone's like, oh, Pierre Engvall, he has a shot, and it's like, yes, no. he does, but do, do I believe that he's, like, do I believe that this is, that he's, like, now suddenly one-third of Alex Ovechkin? No, I do not. No, no, I don't think that that's the case. Well, the truth is that all of these guys we're talking about, when I say David Kampf has no offense, look, the, you know, you put David Kampf a level or two down, he's going to be the best player on the ice. Yeah. Like, all of these guys David were Kampf very might good be like at almost post a point everything. per game in the AHL, yeah. right? That, that's maybe overstating it. But, like, he would be, he would clearly be good in the AHL, even yeah. offensively. It's, it's, it's the same with, you know, Timothy Liljegren. The, the guy did not score in the AHL, at a, like, at all, basically. Mm-hmm. At a lower level, sure. Do it all the time. So, Nick Ritchie, for whatever else, for all his many other flaws has some ability to try and put the puck in the net at the end of those plays. And if you give Kasha some kind of option, you might get more than one assist in 13 games or 16 Uh games now at this point. Um, I don't know if that's worth it in Sheldon Keefe's eyes for the other trade-offs that you make. Apparently it's not because he's not doing it. Um, and, And, you know, Engvall, Kasha, and Kampf, as we've said, has worked defensively about as well as you could have hoped. But it's something to consider as we try and maximize what's always going to be a bit of a jerry-rigged bottom six. Yes. So, so it's tricky because, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the, the better option is, right? 
that yeah. we talked about that third line before. That third line seems to be doing its job, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Kerfoot is, I, I think, you know, maybe that that third line would do just as fine with Kerfoot there, and you put, throw Kerfoot or say throw Kasha up on one of the top two lines instead. But I, you know, even though I think Kasha's probably a better player than Kerfoot, Kerfoot's actually a more natural fit for our top six in particular because he naturally plays on the left wing and he's such a solid complementary player anyways mm-hmm. so a straight swap of those who doesn't seem obviously better to me keith tried it out i'm i'm fine i'm fine with him trying it out but i also you know if it if it's not working we don't have to sink that much time into that experiment necessarily yeah, you know, I think Keith will probably end up trying a lot of things over the course of the season because he's generally free with the line blender for his supporting cast. And it's a long year. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just something to think about in the back of the head. Of course, the reason why Kasha is was so expen- inexpensive for the talent that he possesses is that his injury history is very bad. And anyone watching him sees him end seemingly play after play in like disarray and upside down and stuff like this like he just seems to i i don't want to sound you know harsh like this he's just like he plays he takes the game pretty hard you know he gets hit a lot it feels like he Mm. and he gets hit hard a a whole lot so i i hope that he's able to hang in there and uh and you know to to continue to contribute because when he's on the ice he's a good player Mm. yeah very much so and he was probably the off-season signing we were most enthused about right when we when we saw because we the, the the podcast after Kasha got traded to the Bruins, we were so... We were, like, you know, <laughs> inconsolable. We were like, oh, God, you're fucking kidding me. It was such a rich-get-richer moment. Mm. I, I will say, forever ago, when I did analysis, uh, I did an article looking at players coming off major injuries, and I found that they generally were devalued worse by the market than their actual decline in performance. And so I, I said, you know, like, look at guys who have missed a lot of time as by lows. And so, you know, I'm far from the only person to say that, obviously, but Andre Kasha was an obvious candidate as a guy who's been good when he's been healthy and who isn't that old. Mm. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad to see that it's, it's worked, I'd say, pretty well so far. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do we have any bad takes of the week to discuss? That? Oh, we didn't plan this, but do you have any that come top of mind? Um, nothing that made me so angry that it's burning a hole in the front of my head right now and I need to express it. I guess the only the only one I saw, and I might butcher this because we haven't normally we do at least like a bit of prep for 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 this, uh, but Tord, John Tortorella um, had made some some he, he t- was on ESPN I think as like you know a talking head oh. and said something to the effect of like you know Connor McDavid still needs to like prove it in the playoffs and and whatnot. Uh, he also I- intimated, so this is the part that I might get wrong, but I I only saw because I didn't see the video on this. I just saw this like on Twitter and Reddit and stuff. He also intimated that he didn't think Connor McDavid was the best player uh, in the world and that Alexander Barkov uh, was. That was the insinuation. Which, okay, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to even be kind to, to Tortorella here and say, okay, you know what? McDavid, the bar is really high for him. He does, he does need to show it in the playoffs, right? Like that, that's where the bar, he, if you want to prove you are without a doubt one of the greats to, to, to play, you need to show up when it matters. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any doubt that McDavid will have a dominant playoff series and a dominant uh, playoff run at some point in his career. He's too talented not to. And I do buy that, you know, maybe playoff refing hurts him in particular, although he gets kind of mugged pretty regularly as is. Um, yeah. But, you know, even putting all that aside, say all that is true, Alexander Barkov is the guy you're going with? Has it, what, what the fuck has he done in the playoffs? <laughs> well, okay. I, so I have a theory for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, obviously he just won the Selkie, so he's, you know, capital D, capital R, defensively responsible. Mm-hmm. And you know, to be clear, he's a very good player. No, Bar- Barkov is great. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. But when Joel Quenville resigned in disgrace recently, one of the names rumored quite loudly for a new coach by Kevin Weeks was John Tortorella. And it has crossed my mind that perhaps John Tortorella still thinks there may be an opening there after the season. When, that's, if, in, that's interesting. I mean, so uh-huh. with, with um, Barkov, he, he had, uh, I think, he had like one goal in last year's playoffs. He had a bunch of assists and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's not dominant playoff performance by any means. If You know, Austin Matthews 
has had better playoff series and still got criticized for them. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, it, yeah, it, this I guess it's a very mild bad take, but it's just like, Alexander Barkov is really good. He is not better than, you know, Austin Matthews or Leon Dreisett or Nathan McKinnon, let alone Connor McDavid. Yeah, no, we're stating the obvious here. And also, like, just to be clear, McDavid is better than point a game career in the playoffs. Yes. You know, like, it's not like he's just absolutely going dead silent um, when the end comes. The truth is, his team lost in a sweep in this, in last year's playoffs. And the instinct in hockey is always, when things go wrong, blame the best player. And Edmonton has an extensive track record of that in recent memory. And it was a big factor in the disastrous Taylor Hall trade. Yes. The, um, the thing is, when, you're, when you average two points per game, like McDavid basically has for the last 18 months or whatever, yeah. there, there's a lot more room to fall off. Yeah, like, <laughs> you can still fall back and be exceptionally good. Also, and uh, by the way, we mentioned this at various points on the podcast. We've talked about the best players in the world. And going into last season... We talked about the possibility that Austin Matthews had risen to kind of 1B status. We never had him ahead of McDavid, but we said, you know, he's within shouting distance. And I think it has to be said, McDavid has probably made that gap pretty wide now. Yes, you yeah, we, we talked about this when we, when we talked about the, uh, when, when we did our awards last year, and we basically yeah. said, like, th- there is a sizable gap now, because McDavid just had a bonkers year, not only offensively, but had, like, solid enough defensive results, too. That was, that was the knock on him mm-hmm. prior to last season. You know, but like, and the truth is, if you score two points a game, as much as we talk about points as being a bit of a dated metric and something else, to some extent, that's so far beyond what anyone else in the league is doing. You just turn out to be very, very good. There's just no disputing it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, that, that was almost fish in a barrel because it was so dumb. But like, I think that, it does really reflect something in hockey thinking, which is why Tortorella was, you know, willing to say it. Mm-hmm. The idea that McDavid just has to fix something. And it ties into the old Steve Eiserman myth that he had to learn defense before the Red Wings could be a dynasty. So Yeah, as opposed to the Red Wings just getting better as a team. Yeah. Um, look at their goal, their save percentage by year uh, in the course of that. And it's like they got Chris Osgood and he was good enough. And also the maturation of, you know, Nick Lindstrom, who I, I seem to recall was pretty good. Mm. but anyway so yeah yeah that take was silly yes <laughs> all right so i think yeah that that probably does it for us um anything else you wanted to mention fullman no i'm good all right cool so thank you everyone for listening you can catch all of mine and fullman's work at pensionpanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and thanks for listening we'll see you next week